the pastors here. Uh, if this is your first time with us, on the bulletin, there's a little tear-off. <clears throat> we would love to know that you were here. Um, just follow up with you and say, hey, uh, we also have a gift in back <clears throat> for all first-time visitors. Um, come see me. I'll be back there. We'd love to meet you, get to know you. Um, but if you just tear that off. Also, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, on that is also a section for our, our members and regular tenders to put prayer requests. Uh, know that those get seen by us on staff. Um, <clears throat> they come across my desk and each of them gets prayed for. Um, so if you would love to uh, put that down, we'd love to have that. So um, great morning. <clears throat> a lot of things going on. We got to see some baptisms. What a great picture of what we're going to experience over this week. We got to hear kids sing. I love it. It's, it's more about singing loudly um, with all they have <clears throat> than anything that we often try to do with our own voices. And there's something really amazing about that. And it's Palm Sunday. <clears throat> We're heading into Holy Week. An opportunity to, to be reminded each year of what we should be doing. It's it's not unlike what we just saw in a baptism. <clears throat> it's a remembrance. It's a proclamation. It's not unlike what we'll have when we have Good Friday service, which is this Friday. Uh, we'd love to have you here at 630, um, where we will take communion together. <clears throat> and we'll hear about the cross. We need these reminders, I think. I think all of us need to be nudged. The last time I spoke was around Christmas, and I talked about that a little bit, that I think it's built into the way God interacts with us. We're going to see a little bit of that today. But I think he knows that sometimes we get stuck in ruts and we need to be kicked in the tail. And this is one of those moments <clears throat> where we are being pushed to remember why we do what we do and what we believe. So let's pray. Father God, we just come before you, Lord. We lift up this day. Lord, we give you all of ourselves, like those kids just gave all of their voices. Father, we pray that you would just guide us through this morning in your word, and that we'd be different than when we got here. Changed for you. In your dear son's name, amen. In the first service, I didn't drink out of this because I was worried I'd spill it all the way down myself, so let's see what happens. Look, I can actually drink a, out of a bottle. I know, it's pretty impressive. Well, I've been struck lately <clears throat> by how God, in his scripture, teaches us through everything. Now, I know that sounds obvious, that the Bible, everything in it is, is for us, and, it, and it's to teach us. But I mean everything. I'm talking about every moment in scripture, there is something in there for us. I'm reading through the Bible, <clears throat> uh, the entire Bible in a year as part of my ordination, we have to do that twice, and we have to do it from two separate versions of the Bible, and this first time through, I've decided to do it through the chronological Bible, and there's something really amazing when you do it chronologically. You really get all the nuances of Scripture. So for me, you know, when you're in Samuel and you're, you're doing um, a study on David, the history, really, and then it stops, and then you get to hear David's heart in a psalm it really draws it all together. And what it's been doing for me is it's been making very clear that God wants us to take the entirety of the Bible, not just pick and choose. 
In 2 Timothy, it says, for all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture. Useful for teaching, rebuking, reproof, and raising up in righteousness. And sometimes we just take scripture in these little chunks, and, and we apply it to where we're standing right now. And sometimes I think God wants to push us more. And so what I've seen lately in scripture is this times in scripture where God has taken normal events, things that we would have just glossed right over, and really wants us to grow. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at two trips, two trips to the temple. We're going to look at the time Jesus went the first time. Well, actually, the second time, maybe uh, a couple times more than that. But one of the big times that we see after he has dedicated the temple, when he's 12. And then we're going to look again when he goes back to the temple for what we celebrate today in Palm Sunday. When he goes back to the temple for the last time. Two events, often ascribed to tradition and customs, and see how God teaches us in that. One of the things that I, I've also seen in, in looking at scripture lately is that God has some themes. The themes are going to pop up here in a second. And I want you to kind of just look at those before we read the scripture. These themes I've found as I've been going through the Bible, now listen, they're not all-encompassing. This is not exhaustive. There's probably theologians who have written books about themes of the Bible and it's taken up a book this big. I'm simpler. It takes up a page. But I've seen these as I've been going through and uh, did this a little different than the first service. I wanted to be up there as we're reading the scripture together in Luke. So if you turn to Luke chapter 2. A couple weeks ago, I was really worried um, when Melissa McDonald was here. Um, she started speaking into this story, and I'm like, no, 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 I've been preparing this message for a while. Don't steal it. But she didn't. She set it up very well. Uh, and, I, and I'm thankful for that, and I thanked her actually as well, uh, because there's something really special about this morning, having kids up here, talking about Jesus as a kid before he becomes a king, um, that I think is really going to help us as we think through this. So chapter 2 of Luke Verse 41, we'll go through 52. Now, as parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, I'm sure you guys have gotten used to the fact that I can't make it past a verse before I have to say something. Um, <clears throat> here's one of those normal moments. It goes on in the next verse. Um, <clears throat> and it says, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. You see, this is something they did, if they could, every year. If they were able especially the men. You see, they were going to celebrate Passover, and Passover for them was one of the holiest, if not the holiest of weeks. It was a celebration, a remembrance, like we've been talking about a little bit, about how they were taken out of slavery, out of Pharaoh's kingdom, and set on the path of the chosen people. Now for us, um, when it comes to Easter, sometimes the current Jewish tradition of Passover does coincide. This year it doesn't. It's a couple weeks later. But it's that time where we as Christians, when we think about Passover, come together because we are really going to look at the ultimate sacrifice. Next Sunday, we're going to really lean into that big time, this Friday. 
But for them, this was a holy week. And they went, it was a custom. It was something they, they did every year. It's just like us going to grandma's house on Thanksgiving or, or Easter, we have a plan there. Or even, you know, sometimes we go the same week every year for vacation to the same place. It, it was something that they always did. Now, for Mary and Joseph and their family, it probably was deeper because we know they were devout. It wasn't just a trip for them. And most, most Jews, it wasn't. It was something very special. But that's where they're heading. <clears throat> and when the feast was ended, so we're starting in verse 43, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know. What? This is where Melissa kind of leaned into it. What? They didn't know? They didn't know that he was missing? You see, it was big families, possibly their entire village. Nazareth is not huge. But what they would do is they would send the children and the women ahead to set the pace, and the men would follow in behind. Uh, it, was, it was meant not only to, to keep everybody together, but it was also a, an idea of protection. So often the kids would be running between two groups, and Jesus would have been in that group. He is 12 years old. He is, he's on the verge of being considered in Jewish tradition a man. So he's running between the two groups. So They've lost Jesus. He is in Jerusalem. It goes on, but supposing him to be with the group, they went a day's journey. All right, now we've got to slow down. Has anybody ever been left behind by their parents? Anybody, big family? There's a few folks. You know, I, growing up, <clears throat> and this is back in the days before there was Walmart, my family, Kmart was our store. And I don't know if you remember those big round clothing racks. Um, so one day we were in the husky section, which I think is unfair that we don't have a husky section anymore. And, and my brother and I were goofing around. There was probably some blue light special somewhere. My mom will have to speak into what happened that day. She's here, by the way, so you can blame her. Um, <clears throat> but we were playing, and my parents went wherever they were going. And it took them a while to find us because we were hiding. But they didn't leave without us. They didn't leave without me. It would be obvious in a smaller family if, if one of the children was there and one of the others wasn't. Now, there were probably multiple times where my parents were wishing that was true. They just left us behind. We'd come home from school one day and they're not there. We were tough kids to deal with. <laughs> but I, I, I can't imagine losing my child for a whole day before I recognized they were gone. But that's what happens. Let's go on. <clears throat> they returned to Jerusalem. And I want you to think about this. So they're one day away. That means they have to come what? One day back. So now we're up to two days. Jesus is on his own. And then it goes on in verse 46. After three days, they found him. Now, we could look at this and go, okay, that's a total of three days. Some theologians believe it was a day away, a day back, and then three days looking for him after they'd returned. So that could be five days. We'll stick with the three days because that's enough <laughs> to lose your son. And it goes on. <clears throat> and they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed. Hold on to that. All we're amazed, okay? So just hear that word. At his understanding and his answers, hold on to that too. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Another word I want you to hold on to. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Mary and Joseph are a little indignant. 
what did you do? Why didn't you come with us? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Some pretty amazing things that take place here. Let's unpack it. And we'll unpack it as we look at some of these themes. Because again, as I've been studying uh, straight through chronological, these are the things that keep coming up in God's interaction with us. You see, Jesus didn't need to do anything that Jesus did. He didn't need to be born in a manger. He didn't need to live a life as a human, all the bumps and bruises and hurts that come with that. He didn't need to teach for three years. He didn't need to go and die on a cross. You see, he's the creator of the universe. He could have just snapped his fingers and taken care of his plan, but he didn't. And if he didn't, then why? It's more than just for our benefit to be saved. It's for us to learn from. You see, everything that Jesus does, everything that God does in his story from the beginning to the end has purpose and intentionality for us. Even a simple trip to the temple. So we see a couple things taking place here. We look at the idea of refuge. Jesus says to his parents, well, where else would I be? You see, he saw the house of God as a place of safety. He saw his father's house as the really the only true place to go. And it wouldn't, have been un, it wouldn't have been uncommon for people to be there 24 hours a day. But he went to his father's house because that is a place of refuge. It's a refuge for us. Do we look at the house of God like a refuge? The crazy thing about this is where it goes next when we start thinking about his power and the growth. We hear words like amazed and astonished. He wasn't only listening and learning, which is important for us to hear because even the son of God went to the temple to hear things. We see him ask things of his father throughout his entire life. But he also goes there, and this is an incredible power. He is answering. Guys, he's just a kid. He's 12 years old. I've got a 13-year-old, okay? In our culture, we don't call them men at 13, and there's probably a good reason for that. But he's answering these religious leaders, these priests. He's not only listening and just sucking up and hungry for the word like we should be. He's answering, guys, we need to hear that. Are we hungry for the word? That's part of the growth. But then we go into the power of who he is. He is God with skin on. He's answering these people who probably had gotten burdened by all the things of humanity. You see, in this tradition now, many of the people have been hindered to the truth. And so Jesus, the author and perfecter, John 1 says he is actually the word is giving answers to people who should know better. And that's a powerful thing because we see the amazement from the people around him. 
It goes on a second to even a little later when mom and dad are there and they're astonished by what he's doing. Guys, he's in his calling. Jesus was called from the beginning of time at the creation of the earth to fix us. We are broken. It didn't take us but, what, a week, two, two, three weeks? I don't know how long it takes, but for us to mess everything up. I don't know about you, but it takes me even less time in a day after waking up to mess everything up. It's Jesus' calling to come to us, to come to the house of refuge, to grow us, to lead us, to do amazing things. In John chapter 14, 14, it says this, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the accounts of the works themselves. He's saying, listen, you've got this. I've given it to you because I... I am truly the son of God. But if you don't get that because you've been weighted down by all this garbage, I have provided these amazing miracles. And the scary part in that is he goes on to say, and even you will do greater things. He's modeling the greater things for us. It's his calling. In a minute, we're going to lean into Matthew chapter 21 where we start to really see this. But Jesus, in his answers, there are no purer no truer answers. I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I do this. This is what I do. I get into the Bible. I try to figure out what it means. And then when people ask me questions, I give them answers. I hope that the answers I give them are true. James is very clear about teachers of, the, of, of Christianity, of the faith, that we will be held to a higher account. I take that very seriously. But there's no purer answer, no truer answer than that which comes from Jesus himself. You see, Jesus is calling, part of his calling is to come make pure a temple that had been corrupted. Honestly, he comes to knock it down, he says, and raise it again in three days and make obsolete the building itself. He comes to provide purity. It's his calling. I love this part. There's a little divergence from the Jesus part of the story to where Joseph and Mary are now going, hey, Jesus, why did you do this to us? And we're going to see something about Jesus that's really amazing here. It's part of his power. It's part of his calling. It's part of his purity. But he says to them, where else would I be? I'm about the father's business. And his mom and dad, I don't know that they were as much mad at him, because I don't, I don't think they were. And this is a huge deal for those of you who are left behind by your parents. It's one thing to leave a human child behind. It's a whole other thing to leave the Son of God behind. It says they were searching for him in great distress. We've been listening through Joshua, <clears throat> how when the Israelites were disobedient, the punishment that would come to them. The ground would open up and suck up entire clans. What happens when you lose the Son of God? Take the, I mean, soak that up a little bit. They don't, though, because they take their calling, their obedience. Remember, they talk to angels. They know that he is Emmanuel, God with us. They take this very seriously. The distress came mostly from the fact that they lost the Messiah. 
But here's something that we see in another simple story. Right after that says, Jesus went back to Nazareth with them and was submissive. Jesus shows his perfection in his obedience. His obedience to the earthly parents, the only parents that any of those people at that time actually saw. He was being obedient to his heavenly father and the calling and what he was going to accomplish on the cross, but he had to weekly, daily, minute by minute, be obedient to his earthly parents to remain perfect and sin-free. Otherwise, what we're going to hear about on Friday would be of no use. It would be of no use to us. He's the perfect lamb. Not the semi-perfect lamb. Not a few blemishes here and there. He's the perfect lamb. And we see these themes rolling over the teaching hitting Mary and Joseph now. Because they're being obedient to being the parents of this incredible son. They're being obedient to their calling and raising him up well. They want to see him true and pure. They don't want to see him hurt or lost. So they seek him out. Next thing we see of Jesus is he's growing in wisdom, in stature, in favor. Not just with God, but with men. I love the scripture out of Hebrews. It says, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So Jesus was setting up something that was going to come along down the road, which is where we're going next. He went from kid, 12 years old, to king, entering the temple the last time. So turn to Matthew chapter 21. We see the story of that first Palm Sunday, that triumphal entry in Matthew chapter 21. And it says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them back to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what is spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Stop there. We see a couple things that fall into this theme. We see God, through Christ, fulfilling, being obedient, walking the path, doing the calling. You see, again, Jesus didn't need to do any of this. He didn't have to come in on a donkey, but to prove to us by the accounts and the works, like we saw in John 14, he proves himself through prophecy. This is out of Zechariah chapter 9. And he not only fulfills the prophecy and he's obedient to it and it's a sign to us, he makes abundantly clear who he is. You see, it was part of the tradition in the culture for a victorious king being brought back into the city to ride a donkey that had never been ridden. We think of donkeys as something that is, say, less than awesome. <laughs> I don't know about you. I don't, I don't think about riding my trusty steed and it having long ears and going, Rrr! okay? Our culture has changed. 
We give them parades. We give them nice cars, or they come through on tanks, or, or at least a really cool horse. But he comes on an unridden donkey. He's saying, I'm king. And his victory is not for himself. His victory is for us. His victory is painful and it's gruesome and it's horrific. And we're going to see that on Friday. His his victory is only for us to be brought back to him. But we see Jesus in his power, his obedience, on his calling, keeping everything pure. There's the perfection. And it goes on. The disciples, verse 6, the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put him, their cloaks on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches. That's where we get this idea of Palm Sunday. They spread them on the road and the crowds that went before him and that followed him shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We already talked a little bit at the beginning of the service about what Hosanna means. This is that Hosanna, which means save us, salvation is coming. Save us, salvation is coming. That's what they're saying to Jesus here. And then they're going a step further and they're, they're starting to speak towards that messianic prophecy that he is the Savior. This is a scary time for those who don't understand or those who disagree because it's all coming together. The perfect lamb is coming at Passover to be slaughtered for us. And it goes on. When they entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus. See, some of them were getting it wrong. They'd been burdened by all the stuff, their sin, being misled. They thought he was a prophet from Nazareth. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. He's coming in and he's making pure that which we have corrupted. He's coming in and fulfilling his calling. He's starting the process here. He is taking the dirt and getting it off of us. This is his dad's house, but now he even says it's his house. I love this picture of walking this journey with Jesus right to the cross. He's making everybody aware of who he is and what this is about. And then we see something amazing. He turns the house of the Lord back into a refuge. The next scripture. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. His power. He brought them into the safety of his house and he healed them. Amazing. And and scary that John 14 says... You can do this stuff too. You can do this stuff too. This is the part that scares me about who we might become. In verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things, okay, hear that, the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Wonderful, (laughs) indignant. That's how corrupted This system had become. Jesus was doing his thing, making pure that which we had corrupted. It was a wonderful thing, and the religious leaders of the time were so burdened 
with what they were stuck in, they didn't see it, and they were actually, they were turning it on its head. Guys, we can do that. We can be so bogged down. We can be so bogged down in the things that we think need to be done that we miss the simplicity of God's message to Christ. We have put so many hoops to jump through, and we have said this is the way it has to be, that we oftentimes miss the wonderful thing. It's a dangerous place, and, and it's not something uh, that we are really immune to. We could be there. And they said, do you hear them? Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. You've never read out of the mouths of infants nursing babies? You have prepared praise? What a cool visual we got this morning. And these children singing so loud, so happily, doing their motions. I get the opportunity each Wednesday Wednesday to see them practice down in the fellowship hall and come up with these motions and think them through. I've got to thank Jordan and Sherry for all they do with those children. And they're up here. They're not hindered by all the stuff that we've lived through or we've decided to hinder us. Scripture says of Jesus, he says, bring unto me the little children. And likewise, you should also come like a child. Don't get burdened down by this stuff. These little children were crying out. And the nursing babies, you have prepared praise. What a cool picture. What a neat picture of this, this incredible story from the beginning of time, but even if we just started from 12 years old to his early 30s, what he is proclaiming to us and how quickly in a week from this point forward, he's going to change everything. A new covenant he's going to prepare. He's going to bring the last one up there, which is a theme throughout the entire Bible. He's going to bring salvation to all of us. So I want to think through just these final things. What are you doing here right now? Why are you here? We see God through Christ modeling that we should be looking at this place, the building, as a refuge. Do you look at this as a refuge? Do you go to your father's house and go, this is a refuge? But here's the great thing. Christ changed that and made it more. See, he knocked the temple down, raised it in three days, and then he said, I dwell in you. You can find refuge in the Lord anywhere. But we as a church, when we come here, do we look at this place as a place of safety, a place where we can see God's power? Do you have God's power? Are people who are around you saying, I'm amazed by them? Do the people you interact with in the calling and the ministry that you have, you know, for me, I I chose my calling as vocational ministry. I love it. But some of you, most of you, have chosen that your calling is with your peers, at your jobs, at your schools, with your families. Do the people who are around you go, I'm amazed by them. I'm astonished by them. Because remember, John 14 says that even you, through him, can do even greater things. After coming here and being in the refuge of the Lord, do you go out there and show your power? His power.
our calling sometimes will lead us into dangerous places. Our calling and obedience will possibly take us into enemy territory. Are you willing to go into enemy territory after obeying Christ? John 15 says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated to you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Here's something you need to hear. I don't know how far it is from here to there, 80, 90 feet. The world is just out there. Enemy territory is outside those doors. It's just, I can see it. I hate that it's snowing. It's even colder and worse. But enemy territory is right out there. And scripture says, if you were in the world, the world would love you because it would think of you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If God's calling called you to obedience into enemy territory, would you do it? Because here's the deal. Scripture is very clear that it does. Matthew 28, therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations. That's out in the world, by the way. (laughs) All nations. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Would you go? Are you going? And one of the things that we have to be very careful is, are you willing to fight for purity? Are you willing to bring, and this purity up here is, it's not like sexual purity, though that is part of it. It's not just that. It's not just um, the purity when it comes to cleanliness or that sort of stuff. It's the truth. Are you willing to fight for truth? James 2 says this, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If a man wearing gold rings and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinction among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Ain't nobody in this space any better than anybody else. Not a one of us. And we live in a world that puts people on different levels. That has made that distinction. And scripture says those are the distinctions of evil thoughts. Are you willing to come into the house of the Lord, into this refuge, and make sure there's no partiality keeping this place true and pure? And even a step further in 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is a judge, the living and the dead, And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, hear this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your calling. We're called to make pure which that the world has corrupted. God is living through us saying, listen, I have given you the Holy Spirit. I have given you the power. I have called you to be obedient. I have called you into this power 
I want you to do amazing and astonishing things because this world is going to continue to corrupt and it may even creep into the house of refuge. Are you willing to fight for that? Because ultimately, and what we will hear over this next um, week on Friday and Sunday, we offer the best message ever. The Bible is riddled from start to finish of stories of salvation. We need to be about sharing that. We need to be about making this a place, making our interaction and our calling comfortable and acceptable. In, in <clears throat> Thessalonians, excuse me, Colossians chapter four, uh, 5, it says this, walk in wisdom with those who are without. It goes on to say that you need to be ready to give an answer for what you believe. In every little story, even a story as simple as a 12-year-old getting lost in a big city, we see Christ teaching us to do these things. To lean into these, and like I said, these aren't exhaustive. I'll probably add to it as I continue to read through the entire Bible. But these things are so simple to be able to share the story of salvation with those around us. We've got the best story. I hate using the word story. We've got the best message because people can corrupt the word story into fiction, and it's not. We have the best message to share with the world. And now, this week, more so than a lot of times during the year, people are open to it. People are hearing it, hungry for it. Are you going to share it? God called a 12-year-old to give answers to people that should have known. We have the answer. Let's give it this week. Let me pray for us. Father God, we're so thankful for this day. We're thankful for your incredible grace. Lord, your incredible message. Father, we give you all of this ourselves and the hope that we will be able to give answer in your dear son's name amen they didn't know this I'm not doing the last song so they're gonna look they're gonna go oh okay 